If you are uh, new with us this morning, we have been asking the question, what is a disciple? Um, If the church's primary task is to make disciples, it feels pretty essential that we know what a disciple actually is. Um, If we're asking you as people at Grace Church to be disciples of Jesus, it seems beneficial that you would know what qualifications, what characteristics there are in being a disciple of Jesus. And so today, we are on a disciple is a family member. A disciple is a family member. I'm often asked where I see the concept of church membership in the Bible. Um, and I kind of get this smirk uh, when, I, when I get this question. Some people go so far to ask how I have come to the conclusion that God even intends for us to be committed to a local church. Now, there are plenty of answers I can give. Um, but by far, my favorite answer when asked, how do you know that God intends for us to be committed to a local church, my my favorite answer is simply this, because Jesus prayed that you would. It's my favorite answer because it's by far the most shocking. People don't aren't ready for that answer. How, how, what do you mean that Jesus prayed that we'd be committed to a local church? What do you mean that Jesus prayed that we would be members one with another? You, you mean to actually say that Jesus prayed that us coming to a church and being together as one body is actually a part of Jesus' declared will in one of his prayers? Absolutely. In one of the most important prayers recorded in the Bible, in fact, called the High Priestly Prayer, Jesus made known his public desire that his disciples would be one. And not just his immediate present disciples like Peter Paul, uh, Peter, and, and James and John and uh, Matthew, but his disciples of all ages, the disciples that would come after them. He desired that they would be unified. And as we will see, Jesus prays for the fulfillment of God's great work by praying for all his disciples to come together in a way that proclaims God's gospel, God's good news, God's redemption to the world. Now, to understand the significance of the church, we have to go beyond 2019. We actually have to transcend our year just a little bit and go all the way back to creation to understand the importance of what's happening here on this little hill in Ovilla, Texas, what's happening at Omni in Cedar Hill, less than 10 minutes, 15 minutes away, what's happening at Stonegate in Midlothian, what's happening at Ovilla Road Baptist Church, what's happening in thousands of different churches all across this area, we have to understand what God's creational and redemptive plan has always been. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. God made man and woman in his own image to reflect his glory and, in, and to enjoy a relationship with him. And the goal of their creation was that they would have dominion and multiply and spread God's dominion throughout all the corners of the, of the globe. That as they multiplied and spread, the earth would be filled with little images of God. So that all creation would have these mirrors of God's glory, God's greatness, God's majesty, God's love, God's peace, God's harmony. And in this way, the creational plan began with, guess what? A family. God didn't make a single man. God made Adam and Eve. And it was through the context of this family that God's great glory would spread to all the earth. Well, as you know the story, this perfect harmony uh, that God had made where man would live in, in peace with God and a relationship with God and in peace with each other was not to last. Pretty soon after that, Adam and Eve decided that they were going to be gods for themselves. 
and determine on their own what was good and what was evil. They no longer needed harmony with God. They no longer needed God's kingship. And so they broke relationship with God. And as a result, all humanity has been fractured ever since. Because Adam and Eve sinned against God and broke relationship with him, humanity has lost the glue that holds itself together. We started killing one another. We started backbiting. We started being violent. We started committing adultery. We started oppressing one another. And the world was filled with violence. And even though God blotted it all out and started again, the earth soon became violent and oppressive all over again because man's heart is bent on evil continually. Far from being the good, harmonious, peaceful family that God had intended it to be, humanity became wicked. Now, not all was lost. Because God, pro- God promised salvation, God promised redemption, God promised reconciliation, restoration, and his promises brought hope. Specifically, as our Old Testament 1 class learned this morning, God promised a man named Abraham that he would provide an offspring. And not just offspring as in many different people, it includes that, but a particular offspring through whom blessing would be restored to the world and all the families of the earth would be invited in to that blessing. It's through this particular offspring from Abraham that God would restore what was lost in Eden. Now what we find out about this offspring is that he's Jesus Christ who through his death and resurrection brought about God's promise of reconciliation. By dying, he bore the curse of sin. By raising, he restored blessing of life with God, blessing of peace with God, reconciling forever God and man together, and not just God and man together, but men and men, women and women coming together as God's people forever reconciled because of the dividing lines being, de- being erased, being eradicated completely. The apostolic writers wrote about the church, and they rightly interpreted the church to be the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. We are the children of Abraham by faith. You see that in Galatians. We are the family that God promised in Genesis 12 that would be a blessing to the rest of the families of the earth. It's no mistake that when Paul thinks of the church, in the context of the church, in 1 Timothy 3.16, he calls it the family of God. That is what God's vision for the local church is, is that we would be a family and members of a family. And what's beautiful about this family is it continues to grow with Venezuelans and Latinos and, and, and Canadians and Russians and amazing just people and language groups we could rarely even begin to fathom. People of every single nation, tribe, and tongue coming together, all unified under the same Savior to belong to one another, to be together. That's the beauty of the local church. I mean, you just see what's sitting around you. You see the diversity. You think of the multiple different churches out there that preach the same gospel as we do. That is our family. Those are our brothers and sisters. Now, what is all this background of God wanting to create a family that will spread his glory through all the earth. What does that have to do with Jesus' prayer in John 17? Well, 
Jesus' mission was to fulfill God's big redemptive plan, especially the plan to redeem for God a family who will then spread God's glory through all creation. That is what Jesus came to do, was to redeem us, bring us into the family of Abraham, so that we then would spread God's blessing to all nations. And by praying for his future disciples' unity, he's praying that we would be a family. As we're going to see, his prayer is that believers of of all different backgrounds would come together in a visible way so that the world would know the good news of the gospel. So, if you're anti-church membership, you're going to hate this sermon. It's just fine. Um, If you are about being with other believers and belonging together as a family, you're going to love this sermon. It's going to give you all the gushies, okay? And so, um, you know, we can go out and have lunch later, and for all you extroverts, you'll be happy, okay? (laughs) Sandra Sue. Uh, John 17 is where we're at. It can be broken up into two parts. High priestly prayer. First part is found in the first 19 verses, verses 1 through 19. Jesus prays in those verses for God's glory through what he's about to do. He knows he's about to die. He knows he's about to be led to the cross. And so he prays that God will be glorified through that. He also prays that his present disciples, Peter and James and Matthew, would be kept back from the evil one. That the evil one won't be able to to conquer them in this time of watching their Savior being crucified and brutally killed. But then there's a second part, and it transitions in verse 20. In verse 20, Jesus shifts and begins to pray for his future disciples. It's in the second part that we're going to focus on in this sermon, and and where I think definitively we see Jesus' will for various groups of people, all disciples, to come together and be unified. Here's what we're going to see from this prayer. We're going to to break it up into five headings. Number one, we're going to see Jesus' prayer for a particular unity. He doesn't just pray for kumbaya. He doesn't just pray for unity. He prays for a particular unity. Second, we're going to see the pattern of unity. Third, the goal and mission of unity. Fourth, the hope of unity. And then finally, we're going to end by talking about our great God of unity. Um, It took everything I had not to alliterate those points, um, but uh, I, I successfully did not alliterate those points for you. Um, so let's begin in verse 20. Jesus prayed. Just listen to the sweetness of the words. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Sinking in. As valuable as unity is, Jesus did not just ask for any kind of unity. People can be unified around a lot of different things, can't they? We're unified around our alma mater, right? Uh, every Saturday, college football teams get together, and it's, it's a great time of banding together, right? And it's also a great time to oppress those that your team beat. Um, and so those of you who are Aggies fans, you know Brandon disunified himself from you as he comes lording it over you. People can be unified around alma maters and college football teams. They can be unified around their favorite restaurants, Right? We can all get together and hang out at our favorite eating spots. We're unified around political parties. We're unified around favorite books. We're unified around the kind of clothes shopping stores that we like to go to. And the list can go on and on. We can be unified on a lot of different things. But Jesus doesn't pray for just any unity. Jesus asks the Father for a unity 
centered on faith in himself. It's a unity centered on faith. Jesus had those who will believe in me. That's what he says. Those who will believe in me in mind. He sees beyond just the next few stages of church history. And he looks ahead to the disciples, us, who will believe in Jesus because of what the apostles say about Jesus, which is the Gospels, which is the New Testament. We have come to know Jesus because of their proclamation of the Gospel. And so Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is praying for me. Jesus is praying for what's happening here 2,000 years later. Not just for these only, not just for Peter, not just for Matthew, but for Adam Brown, but for David Selman, but for Richie Hart, but for Jeff Wofford. God is, Jesus is praying at this moment for the disciples who come after. Now, I think this means very simply that we're not to just pray for and talk about and pursue unity for the sake of unity, right? Jesus was not praying that we would all join the same club. He was not asking that we would all have the same taste in music. He was not asking for every young Christian mother to use cloth, use cloth diapers or, you know, disposable. He doesn't care if you like the same hobbies. And it doesn't matter if you believe eating organic is best. There's no unity in the world there with you, okay? He's not asking for unity about all these tertiary things. He's asking for unity built upon our mutual faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. It's the, it's the truth that Jesus is Lord. That's the one thing that stands in, the partic- in this particular unity. What sets us apart from the GOP, what sets us apart from the, all the, the clubs and things that go down the road, what sets us apart from everything else in every other organization, every other union in the world, is that this union is built solely on the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that He came, He died for my sin, and He rose again according to the Scriptures. Now, here's what that means. We can have a church that looks exactly like us. We can, have, we can have a church where everybody is automaton, exact replica. We could be unified on our preferences. We could be unified on our taste. We could be unified in all the things that we like and have everybody else unified in the same way. And yet, if it is not unity specifically in the faith that Jesus is King... Who died and rose again. It is not gospel centered unity. It is not the unity for which Jesus prayed. It's also important to see the scope of Jesus' prayer. Pay attention to the words. He prays that they may what? All be one. That they may all be one. Jesus' desire for his church is a unity that extends beyond ethnic, geopolitical, social, and gender boundaries. He's not looking for a church filled with men. He's not looking for a church filled with whites. He's not looking for a church filled with Americans. He's looking for a church that is filled beyond all these distinctions that we as humans have created between men and men. The, the, the apostles were to go on and spread the gospel to Jews, Samaritans, Ethiopians, Romans, Greeks, and eventually even the far-stretched Gallic tribes of Western Europe. 
thousands of different cultures, hundreds of languages, multitudes of diverse backgrounds, every shade of skin color imaginable. And Jesus prayed for them all to become unified in him. Now, this idea corresponds with other passages like 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. The same concept is found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, which says this, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free, but Christ is all and in all. Now here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that ethnicity, Greek or Jew, has magically disappeared. He's not saying, hey, we should all wear rose-colored glasses so that we see each other as if we're all the same color. Okay? That's not what he's saying. He's also not saying that social status has mystically vanished. There still are slaves and free. Uh, there are still rich and poor. I mean, those, those things are there. Is simply saying that these dividing lines are no longer dividers. These lines that have been placed to break off and categorize humanity are no longer dividers. They may still be there, but in God's great idea, God has broken down the lines and mingled his family together. No dividers. The wall's been broken down. His great idea is that a diverse group of people who are all unified around the same Savior, blacks, whites, Asians, Latinos, high class, middle class, low class, no class, Educated, uneducated, men, women, young and old, gathered all around the one distinct truth that we Christians alone are bold enough to proclaim that Jesus is Lord over all. It's it's the one place in church that you should be able to check your opinion and your preferences at the door and still have the strongest bonds you've ever had. It's the one place where those dividers and those cultural distinctions really don't matter anymore. I mean, if you think about it, this is a, we're an embassy of heaven. And so we're, we're showing the world what's to come. God doesn't make people, doesn't want a kingdom that all look the same. God's a God who loves the diversity. God is a God who loves the nation. He made the shades of skin color. He made the geopolitical boundaries. He's the one who set them up. And he loves that he's bringing together. He's showing the whole world his majesty as he creates this masterpiece that's colorful and artistic and textured. Romans 12, 5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually, listen to this, members of one another. You know what that means, friends? You need black believers just like black believers need you. You're members of them. They are members of you. You need poor members, rich members. You need 
Russian members, Canadian members, Latino members. You need them all just like they need you because you are members one of another. So majestically intertwined. It's just amazing how it all fits together. Talk about the stirring pot. Nobody's been able to achieve this except for God himself. Now, let's look at the pattern of unity. So if that's what God wants, God wants a family that's a very particular unity. Faith in Jesus Christ, that's, that's what unifies us. What then is the pattern? Jesus goes further in his prayer. He not only prayed that the future disciples would be unified, but he also prayed that they would share a unity that mirrors the unity of the triune God himself. That mirrors the triune God himself. Here's what he says. So he prays that they all would be one. How? Just as. What a beautiful. Kathos is Greek. Just as. Just like this. How? Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now, you science guys are like, I can't track that. That's the point. God and Christ, Christ and God, God and Christ and us, us and God. I mean, this is spaghetti ball. Can't, can't break it off. Can't separate it. Can't divide it. Now, it's impossible to imagine God the Son without God the Father, isn't it? God just simply isn't God without God the Son or God the Father. So the same could be said about the Spirit. They share an unbreakable unity. One of my favorite theologians, Michael Reeves, he says it this way. And so we see that the Father, the Son, and Spirit, while distinct persons, are absolutely inseparable from each other. They are who they are together. You know what that means? God is simply not God without the Father. God is simply not God without the Spirit. God is simply not God without the Son. You take out any person of the Trinity and you have irreversibly altered and damaged the idea of Godhood from Scripture. You cannot take out one part of the Trinity. The unity enjoyed between Father, Son, and Spirit sets the pattern. Do you want to know what the standard of kind of unity that we're to have? It's that. It's that. The Trinity is three in one. The church is many members in one body. Three in one, many in one. We are to mirror this trinity. Imagine a group of believers so tightly knit together in their faith in Christ that their bond is unbreakable. You simply cannot fathom these people without each other. They are who they are together. The church is what it is together. Make the church one single person and it stops being the church. Make the church all you, just you, it stops being the church. The church is who it is together. In that kind of unity, it is unfathomable that we would split. Unfathomable that we would break relationships. This is, the, this is the same kind of unity that describes our union with God, so that they also may be one in us. The Father in Christ, Christ in His Father, and we in the Father and the Son. Just this majestic mingling together, same unified love, In this, we are brought into the love of the Trinity. 
Now, let me tell you about what's happening before creation of the world. What was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit doing? They were loving each other. And let me tell you this. They didn't need anything else. The Father was completely satisfied in the Son. The Son was completely satisfied in the Father and the Spirit. The plan that God made to create humans was not because God was lonely and wanted someone to love him. He was completely self-sufficient, completely satisfied. And yet, in a mystery of mysteries, the triune God made humanity all so that humanity can enjoy the overflow of the already abundant love of God for the Father and the Spirit, the overabundant love of the Son for the Father, so that we may taste it and see that it is good. That's it. You want to know why God created us? Not because he needed to, but because he wanted you to taste the love that is experienced in the Trinity. It was so good, he wanted others to see that it was good. Now, because we are in the Son, this is the definition of our union in Christ, because we're in the Son, do you realize that God now loves you as if you were Jesus? Because you're in Christ, Everything that was Christ is now yours. Everything that was his by right is now yours by grace. The love that the God, God loves you as he loves his son. God loves you as he loves his spirit. And that only has happened because of the faith that has brought us in. United together and united to God, we are brought into this harmony that cannot be untwined, unbroken, untied, anything. It is, it is indivisible. We cannot be divided in this kind of relationship. Just think. The fathers, the spirits, the sons, love for one another, now given to you. Now, this leads to an important question, I think. If outsiders were to come into our church and were to see what happens here, would they be able to see a visible expression of the Trinity's love? Would they be able to better understand how the Son loves the Father and the Father loves the Son and the Spirit loves the Father by looking at the way you love others, distinct from everybody else? And yet so united that you love them heart and soul and would die to be with them. Are people able to look in at this unity and say, I understand the ununderstandable now. I get a picture, at least in part, of something that is so far beyond my ability to understand. If it is absurd... Of thinking of the father disowning his son. Think about that. The father disowning his son. Saying, I hate my son. Get him out of here. If it's absurd to think about the son complaining about the father. Can you imagine Jesus walking the earth going, yeah, he's a bit of a gripe, man. That's just absurd. It's almost blasphemous to even think like that, right? If it's absurd to think of the spirit gossiping about Jesus and the father. Yeah, they love each other so much. They push me out. I get forgotten all the time. It's absurd to think about that, right? And yet, we think that we, as Christians who have been made in the image of the triune God, suddenly it's fitting and and okay for us to do that. If it's absurd to think of the Trinity being disunified, it should be absurd to think of the church 
unified around faith in Christ, serving the one holy God in heaven, led and dwelt by the Spirit of God himself, it should be absurd to think of backbiting and gossiping. It should be absurd to think of divisions over petty things. Now this is the the tragedy of churches. We are all too familiar with church splits and disunities and breaking fellowships. Why? Because people got petty things in, in mind, preferences and opinions and tastes and styles and all these different things and what they ended up doing. And this is the strategy of Satan himself. They ended up tarnishing the image of the perfectly unified triune God. Why do you think Satan glorifies in split churches so much? Because it's the one way he's able to cast mud on the image of God. He knows that if the, the, the world is able to see that unity, they'll begin to understand God and want to know him more. So he throws dirt on the image and shatters it and breaks it apart. The pattern set for us as a church is that we would love each other the same way that the Son loves the Father. Can you honestly say that about the people around you? That's the standard set. That's what we must try to achieve as a church. Will we do it perfectly? No, but that's exactly the the way that we're supposed to do it. And if we haven't attained it, are we actually being faithful to attain gospel-centered unity? Next, Jesus prays for a goal, and he has a goal and a mission in mind with this unity. This is seen in the next several verses. Why should the disciples be unified? Why is it so important that the church be unified around faith in Christ? Here's what he says. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, and I in them, and you in me, and they may become perfectly one. So that, the thought, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. So first, Christian unity has a goal. Here's the goal. That they may be perfectly one. Jesus said that the glory God has given him, he's given to us. Can you imagine that all the glory from eternity past that was given to Jesus, he says, I have given to them, to us. But to what end? That we may become perfectly, completely, absolutely one. Jesus has equipped us to do what he prays for. Jesus has equipped us to, based on the unity he has given, based on the glory he has given, to achieve the unity of being perfectly one. When it comes to the unity of Jesus, he doesn't have in mind that we would all just simply tolerate each other. He doesn't have in mind that we would get to a point that we would simply be okay with going into the same building together. He has in mind that we would be perfectly unified. It is the unity that we will continue to pursue. It's a, in the words of the Chronicles of Narnia, it's a unity that we go further up and further in. We continually progress. We're never complacent. We're never content. We're never satisfied with the level of unity that we have. We want more. 
Which means that as the day continues to approach, that Jesus comes back, we should be stirred up to be together even more. We should be stirred up to fellowship. We should be stirred up to love. Our consciences should be pricked to have pity on those around us that we can't seem to get along with. To seek reconciliation, to seek forgiveness. As our time becomes sweeter, our bond becomes deeper, our fellowship becomes stronger, all getting ready for that day when Jesus splits the clouds and we're perfectly one. Next, Christian unity has a mission. We've talked about this a little bit already, but Jesus prays for his people's unity. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. He says it again in verse 23, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. The mission of the church's unity is simply this, that the world would know and believe. Know and believe what? That you have sent me. Unity around the gospel evidences to the world that Jesus is who he says he is. What other Messiah can bring such peace and unity that spans ethnicity, gender, social status, and geopolitical boundaries? What other Messiah can simultaneously call a zealot, a tax collector, and fisherman? Sounds like a joke, doesn't it? A zealous, a tax collector, and a fish and a fisherman walk into a bar. No, we're a church, I'm sorry. They walk into an Aldi's. Okay. But yet, the truth of the gospel is that Jesus is able to bring these three unlikely people together, all unified in the one single faith. It is only Jesus, the only Messiah who can take a staunch Pharisee who hated and hunted Christians to put down his sword and say he has no greater joy than to be with them. When we are unified in the way that we should be, not unified in getting our way, not unified in having things that, the way we want it, not having things unified in our preferences, but unified in faith and in the common confession that Jesus is the Son of God. When we are unified that way, the world has to reckon with the fact that Jesus saves. I mean, think about it. This is why we should desire for our, cult, for our church to be diverse. We should desire for churches to be filled with young and old, rich and poor, introverts and extroverts, soccer moms, single moms, intellectuals, unintellectuals, hippies and heavies. I don't know what a heavy is. Maybe just an <laughs> old-fashioned person. Who knows? We'll edit that out later. (laughs) When the world walks into that kind of unity, so many different diverse people. I mean, there are people here that you might not in any other occasion talk to. There are people here that if you were to not have any other relationship with them, you would never even cross the street to say hi. You would never even go to shake a hand. You'd never go to give a hug. They would be those people and we would be these people. And yet the gospel works in such a way to make this. Children, adults, different colors. White hairs, no hairs, black hairs, brown hairs. I mean, it's just just a 
beautiful expression of God's ability to bring together what the world on its own cannot. You talk about world peace. I mean, it sounds like a, a beauty patch. Oh, I want world peace. My friends, if you want world peace, you must want Jesus because he's the only one that can do it. People have tried all over. They, there have been theories. If we make everybody rich, we'll be unified. Well, guess what? They start passing out money and people still aren't unified. This guy kills that guy to get the money that was given to him. If we educate everybody, we'd be unified. Well, we start educating everybody and guess what? It becomes a competition about who's smarter. Nobody in all their plans to bring unity in the world has ever accomplished it except for one man. And he didn't do it by winning the Nobel Peace Prize. He did it by bringing reconciliation to God through his own death and resurrection. So when we speak about and live out God's love together as a church, do we do so in such a way that people can see that God loves us as he loves his son? Do we do it in such a way that we want people to understand that Jesus is the Savior who brings together those who normally wouldn't be brought together. Now, that's the first thing, that the world may believe and know. Next, Jesus says that he wants us to, uh, wants us to be unified so that the world may know that God loved us as he loved his Son, that you loved them even as you loved me. My friends... This is, this, is, this is rich in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, he says this, that we have been seated in Christ, Jesus' reserved place at the table of God's table fellowship is now ours. We have been seated in Christ. Why? So that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of grace in kindness toward us who are in Christ Jesus. That means everything God has planned to give to his Son from Eternity on will be given to us. We sit in Jesus' seat. Not because we deserve it. Nothing that we have is by right. It's all by grace. But the reality is, is he wants us to be unified in such a way that the whole world sees that God loves us. Now, I think this implies several things. When we get together, God's love should be evident, right? I mean, we can talk about a lot of different things. But the thing that should be on our lips the most when we get together as a church is God's love in Christ. It's something that we must bask in, glory in, sing about, talk about, pray about. It should be the first thing out of our lips. Now, I've got to confess, the first thing out of my lips this morning was telling Clint Howard how bad I was going to beat him in fantasy football today. That's great. I'm glad Zach's cheering for me. But me discussing fantasy football is not going to bring outsiders in to see that God loves us. As much as we can talk about, we should talk about nonsensical things. It's fun. But one thing for sure we must always make sure is on our lips. One thing we must always press to add into our conversations together as the people of God is that God has loved us in Christ so that the world will know that we are loved by God. Next, let's look at the hope of unity. We're coming near an end. In his prayer, 
Jesus expresses his hope in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, uh, that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me from before the foundation of the world. My friends, I want to be with Jesus really bad. But Jesus wants to be with me way worse. Jesus prayed that we would be with him. Jesus is requesting that God would bring us into his presence. That's what Jesus wants, his heart's desire, his hope is. And it's not just hope because he knows that it's going to happen. But the hope of this prayer is that we would be so unified together that together we would come into his presence. Now, what's going to happen when we see his glory? Because that's what's going to happen when we come into his presence. We'll see his glory. What happens? Well, we know two things about his glory. According to John chapter 1, verse 14, it says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, what? Full of grace and truth. Which means when we see Jesus' glory, we'll see Jesus' grace and truth in the greatest, most fullest expression that has ever been seen in humanity. For all eternity, seeing the greatest expression, the most potent, powerful picture of God's grace and truth right then when we see Jesus' grace and glory. Second, his glory is transformative. Second Corinthians chapter 3.18 says, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image of one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And we all know 1 John 3.2, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know one thing, that when he does appear, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The moment God's glory, Jesus' glory, is seen by our eyes is the moment every sin, every selfishness is wiped away. And we perfectly image God. So receiving for all eternity, grace, truth, Grace, truth, grace, truth. That's what comes from Jesus' glory. Giving for all eternity, image of Christ. Because we're transformed to image him. Now, that's the hope that Jesus has. Being a part of a gospel-centered church should be that we stir up longings for that. I love it when people begin to weep and cry when they think about what's to come. Not just weeping and crying over circumstances now, but weeping and crying about what's to come. Because they're overwhelmed by true joy of what's coming. Now the God of unity. This is our final point. Jesus prays, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you, that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. Now Jesus ends by pointing out once again the one thing we all have in common. We have the same God. He's a righteous father. Jesus says that I have made your name known to them and I will continue to make it known. You know what the best thing about this unity is? Is it's when we're together that we know more and more and more and more and more about God. My friends, by being isolated Christians, Christians who stand off and say, ah, I don't mind going to church a couple times a month. I don't mind going once a year and Christmas and Easter is about all I can stand. 
you don't realize that you're not hurting the church's budget. That's not what you're hurting. You're not hurting our attendance numbers. Nobody really cares about that anyway. You're hurting yourself because it is in coming together as a unified body that we grow in our knowledge of God. That's what Jesus says. I will make it known to them. I will continue to make it known to them. God's plan is that we would grow in the knowledge of God together forever. And that for all eternity, we'd be stirred up. This is gospel-centered unity. Sunday after Sunday, 52 weeks of the year, Monday nights, uh, Wednesday night gatherings, when we get together in life groups together, continually progressing in our knowledge of God. And that's why we're unified, is so that we would know God. My friends, we have something beautiful here. The world knows its own loneliness and its own disunity. And it's befuddled, dumbfounded by what we have going on here. They don't know what to do with it. God has brought together this group of people by one message. We have one hope, we're one body. In whom dwells one spirit, in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all. That's us. He's given us oneness in that. The world wants this. They just don't want Jesus, so they'll never have it. The world wants this. We have it, and we have it because of Christ. What then does this mean for us? I think the words that Jesus said about marriage apply. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. My friends, do you see yourselves as a family member? Do you see yourselves as belonging to one cosmic, amazing family that spans not just geopolitical boundaries, not just ethnicities, not just social political backgrounds, but generations? Are we still so focused on Jesus and me? As if everything that Christ has done and everything that God promised was all leading up to my singular jam sessions and K-Love in the car. Jesus has died for this. A masterpiece. Filled with color. Filled with texture. It's a cosmic mosaic that Jesus is building So that God would be glorified by every tribe, by every nation, by every tongue, by every shade of color that you could possibly imagine. That's what God wants. So my friends, to be a disciple, that must be what we want as well. So let's pray for that today. If you don't know Jesus and you're tired of being alone and you want to know God and you want to know Christ and you want to know the love of God that he's poured out in Christ on the cross for you. We would love to pray for you and invite you into this family. Um, Elders will be standing in the back. Maybe you're a Christian who has for far too long thought about just Jesus and you. And you're starting to feel the ramifications of that. You see, you sense the growing selfishness. You sense the growing singular perspectiveness to where it only matters about what you think and nobody else thinks. And you just know that that's something you need help and prayer to break through. We want to pray for you. 
so that you can enjoy being in this family that God has made and not be hindered by the own hardness of your heart. And so if that's you, we want to pray for you, and I'm going to pray for us together. Elders, if you'll go to the back, take your wife um, and your Bible, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll pray and sing together one more time. Father God, we thank you. You have made a family here in Ovilla, and we are a small portion of a bigger family that spans nations, generations. Father, I pray that we will be as close to an image of the triune God, you loving your son, your son loving you, your spirit loving you, your son uh, loving the spirit and sending him. Father, I pray that we will be such an expression of that majestic mingling that people will be saved. That they will see an image of you and be pressed to believe the gospel. God, you are sovereign and we know it all depends on you and we thank you that you have worked in the way that you have worked to bring us together. Now, Father, we ask you to keep us together and help us continue to grow that we may be perfectly one. We pray this in your son's name.